Heavy Hops is a Scorched Tundra production. You can access all our episodes with detailed show notes and information about upcoming events by visiting scorchedtundra.com slash heavy hops. Be sure to follow us on your preferred social media platform. Subscribe, leave us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you access podcasts. Thanks for supporting us and enjoy the show. And it's not that world anymore. You've got to focus on seven things. So when two of those things become obsolete overnight, you still have five things. But most importantly, you've acquired the skill of acquiring skills. So you're like, I'll acquire two more skills and I'll have seven more before you know it. Welcome to Heavy Hops. My name is Alexi. Martin Atkins' experience as a musician and entrepreneur spans genres, borders, and industries. He was a member of Public Image Limited with Johnny Rotten, Ministry, Killing Joke, and Pig Face, in addition to being a performer with Nine Inch Nails. He's touched every aspect of the music industry and covered it in three books. We discuss Martin's most recent undertaking, the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music in Chicago, and what it's been like collecting and deciding what to do with equipment, costumes, and other artifacts from his rich and colorful career. Martin also teaches at Millican University in Decatur, Illinois, and lectures regularly about the music industry. We devote time to my questions about building a local scene in a highly globalized world and how artists can get recognized amidst the proliferation of music online. Let's dive and get heavy. Martin Atkins, welcome to Heavy Hops. It's a pleasure to have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Tell me a little bit about the Museum of Post-Punk and Industrial Music. Uh, That's not a simple question. In kind of a simple way, you know, I've always tried to, for myself, for my art and my music and for the things that I do, I've always tried to use every single thing at my disposal to differentiate myself. And so I guess as a result of doing that for a long time, it seemed like as I saw my other artists continuing to do the things that we always did, I just thought I wanted to do something different. A few people, for the last few years, people have been saying to me, you should do a new Pigface album. I'm like, yeah, I have no interest in doing a new Pigface album. I might at some point, but I'm not going to... You know, I I was never part of that cycle. So I think a festival, and I'm sorry, this is a long-winded answer, but you just have to deal with it. Um, A festival was announced. Um, Oh, my God, I uh, held something. I think it's in France. Hellfest. And so I saw the the poster, uh, and there's there's a Friday at Hellfest, which is basically my resume. It's like... Nine Inch Nails, Killing Jokes, Skinny Puppy, Ministry, you know. um, And I was like, whoa, wow, you know. And um, within just about 10 seconds, I also thought, what a fucking nightmare. You know, standing in a field? Like, what, 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 you know, like if I enjoyed the first band. And because you got to go to see all eight bands on the Friday. That's why would you not? You know, so it just sounds like a nightmare for my knees. And, you know, I'm old, but I'm sure I'm not the oldest fan, participant, whatever. So this idea of doing something else kind of um, 
materialized. Then, uh, you know, I have a space in Chicago. It's an old funeral home. And I just thought, look, if, if I don't open up these boxes and display some of these things and maybe go through them, you know, tidy them up, fold them up neatly so they take up less space. If I don't do that now, I might never do it. And I also had the idea that it would be the worst possible thing to inflict on any surviving members of my family. I have four boys. To, instead of celebrating my shit, to to stressfully unknowledgeably go go through stuff like what is the you know accidentally destroying the most important stuff and carefully preserving worthless shit so so that that kind of um that played into it and then and then well there's two more things I'm sorry that then this idea that although my collection is absolutely fucking ridiculous and it goes back to a ticket from the Paris Metro from 1980 when I was there with PIL to do my first two shows with Pill, which were immortalized as uh, Paris Protoms. I have the hand-typed itinerary from Virgin Records um, for that show. I've got a, a paper cup from the BBC when we did the John Peel show in 1979. So just extrapolate that 42 years forwards, right? And And so... I wanted to not have the museum of me, but to use my collection as a kind of, uh, how would I describe this? As a magnet to, uh, and, and this has unfolded over the last four months especially, but maybe the last six months. If I was starting a museum from scratch, hey, send me your things. Why? Fuck off. You know, I'm not, not gonna, you know. But when there is so much, the Fook backdrops by Tim Gore, who did eight seasons of The Walking Dead, the latex king of Hollywood. Uh, my suits, which were made by Sandy Powell in 1980 when, when we weren't doing speed or drinking Red Stripe. We were heavily into fashion and she did the last five projects with Scorsese. So you take that and my... My management of Kill and Joke, 350 releases on my label, and 600 members of Pigface. And you'd, so it's almost like this terribly unfair advantage of we're already at an endpoint of a museum if we wish to do that. But then to make this public and uh, allow people to become founders by sending significant items has been insane and I, we can talk about that in a bit because there's a an emotional spiritual component of that that's that's been very surprising and then you have this perhaps this last element of it which is you know in in 88 i started a label and that was a thing you know but you know side like whoa, whoa, whoa what do you do start a label fuck shit wow you know now everybody has a label you know, and then I wrote books and I went on speaking tours and that was different and new and exciting and I really enjoyed that and I still do. Um, but <clears throat> I hadn't started a museum. And so um, I took a leaf out of Nipsey Hussle's playbook, I think. Also, there's a, there's a, 
a marketing experiment where these guys had a juice company and they, they did a festival and they didn't know if they should start a juice company for real, you know, give up their jobs. And so they put two trash cans at their booth and they said, look, if you enjoy the juice and you think we should give up our jobs, put it in the give up your jobs trash can. If you think like, yeah, the juice is okay, but hold on, put it in the maybe, not quite sure. And by the end of the day, the give up your jobs trash can was just overflowing and, and it was just obvious. In the same way that, and there's a word for this, and I don't know what it is. I heard that these architects were planning um, pathways across a university uh, field, quadrangle. And um, they had days of meetings about where the pathway should be, the traffic and the most used parts of the university. So some straight lines between those. And then somebody suggested not doing anything and just waiting six or seven months and then paving the paths that had been worn in the grass because those were the paths that, paths that people were taking. So all of that stuff kind of molded into this thing. And I, just one day I just posted, I think I'm starting a museum. If you want to be a founder, if you want the thing that you did this week to help found, help to, to be to help found a museum, buy this shirt. And the shirt was $125. It's not nothing. I just thought, if nobody's interested, then no harm, no foul. But if people are, there'll be funds to do that. And then, and so a bunch of people, you know, did that. They bought the shirt. And then, it, you know, we started to do some events. And then people said, well, I'm never going to wear the shirt. I'm going to frame it. You know, people were proud to be founders, you know. And uh, they said, would you do a letter? So, of course... I hand type this fucking letter and there's rubber stamps on it, you know. And um, so I'm like, okay, here's a letter. The letter will get you in uh, so you don't have to wear the shirt. And then, and then people are like, yeah, but we, we want to frame. We've got to frame the letter. It's really nice. I'm like, oh, for fuck's sake. So now there's this little pass, uh, personalized pass that people get. And um, it surprised me at every possible turn. I, you know, you held up the the sandpaper bag from the Dark Matter Museum coffee. And that surprised me because I thought, I think any sane person would think, okay, we're changing things now. We're going, we're going to be a different person who gives guided tours of your creative past and other creative things. But it really surprised me when I was just in the museum, I'm like, oh, I was familiar with Guy Debord's book Memoir with the sandpaper sleeve from 1959, which was the inspiration for Duritti Column's um, uh, Return of the Duritti Column sandpaper sleeve album 1980 on Factory Records. So I thought, oh, that would be fun to, to do a sandpaper bag for Dark Matter. But the idea of screen printing onto sandpaper, I mean, I, I don't know anybody that's done that. I don't know any, like, why would you, you know, like, and so, so to be, to be sitting in the museum and like, oh, hey, what are you doing? I'm screen printing on sandpaper, you know, whoa, I'm like, holy shit, this is like, so then as we're gluing the sandpaper onto the bags, I'm like, wow, what was, 
our fingertips were literally connecting to Guy Debord and Duritti Column of Factory Records and Joy Division, who sat at Factory Records hand gluing the sandpaper. And so you have all this tactile, this crazy shit going on. And it's just, it's just been glorious. And then we start to try and not be a museum and fuck up the idea of that. So we did a hair pop-up. Gil Castro and Arandi Tovar came in and did a pop-up hair cut, hair salon. We did a whiskey pancake brunch during cold waves. We've done readings, uh, myself and Steve Silver, who wrote a book called This Might Hurt a Bit. Um, we did kind of story wars, story slam. I DJed in there and we've just given guided tours and hung out, you know. And it's it's just been the most surprising, glorious thing. And, and now, honestly, I, I, maybe three weeks ago, I'm like, oh my goodness, stop this. It's crazy to the point where it's difficult for me to, to stay on top of these packages now. So the package that did that initially was a snare drum. I'm sorry, this is a really long answer, but um, when I walked off stage for the last time with Killing Joke, I gave my drum tech, Bart, uh, the, the floating brass snare drum that I used for several years with Killing Joke. I'm like, there you go. He's a drummer. I mean, I beat the shit out of my drum. So he had it refurbished and um, and then got busy with some other stuff and didn't really, uh, he played in a couple of bands on wax tracks and, and um, but never really got back into his drumming after, after he was my drum tech. And so 30 years later, 30 years later, he emails me, says, hey, um, I want to send you that drum back. And that is where... I, it, it stopped me in my tracks because I gave the drum away. I didn't lend it out. I gave it away, never expecting to see it back. And, and truthfully, I don't remember giving it to him, <laughs> you know. Um, but I, I kind of like, it made me think like, wow, I just, I just quit killing joke. It didn't occur to me that I'm like, oh, hey, by the way, there goes your job as well, mate, you know. But I always say to anybody who's sending me anything, send me the thing, of course, but please take some time and, and, and write a story, however you want to write it, you know. Write a story about this object because the story with the object is the thing for me. And so when that drum arrived, and I, and I think I have all of these conversations with people, I'm going to send you this. Like, yeah, okay. I kind of believe it when I'll see it. You know, I think that's the smart approach. And uh, when that drum arrived, I'm like, great, the drums arrived. But I had this opposite reaction to like the postman arriving with my birthday presents, which was just, just like, I don't have the time or the energy or the mental space right now to sit and open this box properly and respect it, respect the literal figurative journey it's been on for 35 years and to take some time and read the story. I want to sit quietly and read this story when I open this box. And then, you know, six months ago, this guy Brad 
sent me one of Ogre from Skinny Puppy's stage suits. And he was very nervous about that because he, I mean, I'm like, yeah, I'll put it, I'll put the suit in front of a backdrop that Ogre's sung in front of. And there's all kinds of Ogre stuff. But then after the snare drum arrived, a microphone signed by Ogre from the same tour arrived. A key from a smashed synthesizer on a Camlap tour signed arrived with a story from Jared from Camlap and a story from the girl who'd sent it. A flyer from a show in Pittsburgh signed by 12 people, three of whom aren't with us anymore, was just gifted. Then it just started getting silly. So today, three ministry multi-track tapes arrived at the house. One of them is burning inside from the video, which I play on the video, but not on that studio song, because I play on the, the In Case You Didn't Feel Like. And then there's this third multi-track. And I'm looking at the label just from a photograph. And it says, Bill and Martin, unfinished song. Well, that's Bill Reeflin, who is no longer with us. It's from 1989. And like, so something else is going on where, I mean, I kind of like my description of the music. My collection has become a magnet. And in some ways, it's increased the size of the collection as it's connected to me. But it's also, and I am connected to ChemLab, but I wasn't on that ChemLab tour. You know, to have these other objects, a hard drive with photographs from the early 90s, ticket stubs, T-shirts, vinyl bootleg, vinyl, other vinyl albums, signed albums, signed CDs, all of these areas of the museum are starting to kind of become their own thing. So it's quite, it's not like it's my new album. Hey, things are going great. We're looking forward to the summer and blah, blah, blah. You know, it's this really fucking heavy thing. And when I, anytime that I take time out of my day and I, I don't have that much time anymore to gift somebody a tour and spend some time, then it just happened a week ago. This guy's like, oh, I've got this poster of Johnny Rotten that I've never seen anywhere from a show you did in 1980. Like, okay, guy who, who saw PIL in 1980 and now lives down the street from me. You know, like, okay, you know. So this museum has, has just, uh, it's become this thing that I had my arms around, but now it firmly has its arms around me. And I don't know where it's where where it's going physically, spiritually, wherever. I feel like I want it to stay where it is, but I also feel like we've run out of room. I I I don't have the time to go through my own collection, let alone respectfully open the the packages that are arriving. Of course, I will. I'm logging them, you know. But it's wild. It's a wild thing. The way that you describe it, with the generous detail that you offered, is really that it is an organism of its own. And it's almost as though museum isn't really the right word for it. It's a word that we are familiar with in the context of being a collection of things from a short or lengthy period of time. But do you think that museum is actually a fair characterization? Because to me, like museums are places where there is a curator and 
the curator exerts a level of control over what is placed where and what that experience is going to be like. In some way, it feels as though you just admitted it away. This thing has got its grab on you. Do you think museum is actually like a fair way of characterizing this? Well, it's it's the way to characterize it so that we can fuck with it, you know, so people understand museum. It's like you you don't show up drunk, although somebody might, you know. I mean, when I do my online stuff, there's always, especially if there's a time difference and it's midnight in Scotland, there's somebody, somebody singing or, you know, screaming at me. But um, so I think, I think it's... Uh, a necessary, it's an interesting part of a performance in which people like <sighs> arrive at the, arrive at the museum, right? So the and then there's like, yeah, okay, go downstairs. Um, the the console is set up in the studio. Why don't you do a mix of Trent Reznor singing "Suck with Pig Face"? What, right? So there are my drums. Have a go. You know, I haven't smashed them. You probably won't, you know? So it's like, what does this allow us to do in this context? If we just said, you know, but but I do describe it as a theme park. It's not a museum. It's a theme park, but it is a museum, you know? And, um, but that, that is the word. So I talk to students about this all the time. You change the context and you change the words. So, you know, if it was a, a restaurant, you know, I'd be like, oh, I just went and bought a new painting for the, you know, for the bathroom, you know, uh, it's a museum, so I'm, I'm acquiring a new piece for the collection, you know. I just like the different words. I mean, we have a 110-page magazine. It's fucking amazing. And uh, it comes with a, a free hand-screened, signed and numbered, spray-painted, limited-edition flexi-disc. And um, we're calling it a catalogue because it's a museum. It's a magazine, but it's a catalogue. So I just like the different words. And um, I think it's cool to do a hair pop-up. And and so, you know, so you have mimosas and and uh, hair all over the floor, whereas the traditional museum will be, oh, my God, you know, Morrissey's backpack is in the corner. Vacuum up the, you know, who cares? I mean, um, and of course I want to preserve all this stuff, but it's existed for the last 40 plus years in my negligent keeping. So um, there have been some people who are like, oh my God, don't let anybody in. (laughs) Like it needs to, it needs to be seen. And it needs to be, I like it when it's seen adjacent to something else. So when we did the whiskey pancake brunch, I loved having this long table down the middle of the room with chairs and we screen printed a pig face tablecloth, big banner. And uh, we had these, the museum lamps on this thing. And people, people were just talking and eating pancakes and drinking mimosas. And then you'd see them like kind of, looking at the walls, you know, and like, what the hell is that? You know, um, which, which, which made it seem to me perhaps less important, but also more likely to, to permeate, to, to crawl its way into someone's brain, 
instead of going, look at this, isn't this amazing? Now over here is another amazing piece. Let me tell you why. It's like, yeah, yeah, no, eat a pancake, have a drink, and just look at the shit on the walls. But also the thing I've learned pr pretty pretty quickly is you, you never know what is going to be the earth-shattering thing for somebody. It could be the smallest thing you wouldn't believe. So that's um, that's an extrapolation, I think, of the mindset. Like you know, in the early days of Pill, if we had a bad show, you know, but you'd be talking to somebody afterwards and they'd be like, well, I just want to say what a great show. I'm like, yeah, you're wrong. It wasn't a good show. And here's the five reasons why. And after a while, <clears throat> after a decade or so, you, you start to look, look, if this if that was the wildest show anybody's ever seen, let them have it. You know, then, then it was. I, I give guided tours, but I let people, I, like, I try and get an idea of the stuff that, that resonates for people. But then you'd be surprised. Like, there's so much stuff already in there. And on the way out, there's part of a flight case that I cut up, leaning it against the wall, because at some point I might make a bar out of the flight case pieces. I, I don't know. And this guy's like, oh my God, 91X. There's like a sticker from... 30 years ago on the side of a flight case of a radio station that's either in Detroit and it leaked into Toronto or was in Toronto and it leaked into Detroit. This stopped this person in their tracks and for like 10 minutes of, oh, you know, and I'm like, part of me wants to say, well, really, you know, having a go on my drums wasn't the deal, you fuck. It's this 91X sticker, you know, partially gouged, you know, and, uh, so th th it's kind of, um, the museum is kind of um, teaching me a kind of a humble, open approach to stuff. And then it's also a great place to, um, it just, it's also a backdrop for me to, we did a After School Matters event there. I, you know, and I'll, I'll go and talk, I do my lectures and I'll talk about screen printing and you know, occasionally I'll do a screen printing workshop. So to stand in the museum and point at the killing joke backdrop. So it was one pull to make a dollar bill for the money is not our God scenery and explain that that's also a t-shirt. A t-shirt is a $17 bill because it costs three and you sell it for 20. But these dollar bills on the scenery, I, I told these kids, I wouldn't sell one of those for $500 now. And then I used that same screen from 30 years ago to print onto museum acid-free paper. And I'd sell those for 150 to 200. And then we went downstairs and printed shirts, you know. But, but to stand in amongst that as a kid who left school at 16, but now has my master's degree and has written some books and done some stuff and played on a Grammy award-winning song. For me to say, you can fucking do anything felt like it carried 10 times more weight saying that in the middle of my museum surrounded by all of this crazy shit, you know. And for that alone, it was worth starting the museum. You're listening to Heavy Hops. We'll have more from Martin Atkins in a moment. There are a few things happening in the world of Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra that I want to share. You can find tickets to Scorched Tundra Present shows at scorchedtundra.com slash tickets. We've also created a crowdfunding source for all things Heavy Hops and Scorched Tundra. If you love what we do and want to support us, find the donate link in the episode notes and give what you'd like. 
giving any amount will grant you access to our Discord community and an opportunity to contribute to making this show and Scorched Hunter content the best it can be. Please also consider sharing this episode, rating us, and leaving a review on Apple Podcasts, which helps others find us. Thanks for this moment, and back to our conversation with Martin Atkins. In terms of your teaching, you're with the Millican University in Decatur. You've taught a number of different institutions in the Chicagoland area. You mentioned your books, two of which are Tour Smart and Band Smart. Teaching and sharing your experiences beyond all of these experiential, you could call them artifacts, you could call them parts of your life, works. You're also interested in sharing business experience with people and helping them find their way in some respect. Is it important for students to understand there are a lot of different modes of success that you can find in the music industry? Well, yeah, I mean, for a bunch of reasons. Because you're not going to make it by being an amazing guitarist or an amazing drummer. You're just not. You need to have seven things going on. Like, you want to be a studio intern at my place? I also need you to be a barista now because Dark Matter gifted me this Morizocco espresso machine. And I need somebody to run it. So when I talk to students about five to seven skill sets, you know, I'm not joking. I'm not trying to be a, a naysayer. And so when you have those skills, you can be on the road. You can help somebody like me. You can be immersed in some stuff and and stay close to it, close enough to kind of, as the Gallagher Oasis Gallagher Brothers did, you know, they were on the road for three years with a couple of different bands before they said, we can do this shit. But they got the stance together. They got the, they understood, you know, what to push against. And um, I think it's tremendously beneficial for a student to get all of those skills to learn how to sell their own merch or somebody else's, to not be afraid of that, to make their own merch, to run a tour, to look at the logistics, because your fucking agent won't, your manager won't. They're busy with the five other bands they're working with or the 20 other bands. So you take responsibility for all of that. And then it might lead to a completely different thing. You know, the last label manager I had left to work the first Obama campaign. And the conversations we had were exactly the same, except instead of Ramon's tribute album, it was uh, which was Gabba Gabba G A B B E R Gabba Gabba Hey, like an accelerated tribute to the Ramones. Um, instead of talking about that, we were talking about campaign ideas and and geographical spread for, of mailing pieces and like logistical supply chain stuff that made a difference to the Obama campaign and and uh, like don't spend money where it's not going to make a difference. It's just like that's being on the road. I don't need to worry about my Saturday night Thalia Hall show with Pigface. I need to worry about my Tuesday night Phoenix show because the venue's too large and Nine Inch Nails are playing there three weeks before and will drain all the money out of the market. So I'm going to spend the money there. I think... Everyone's grandparents told their kids or whoever would listen, you've got to focus on one thing. And and it's not that world anymore. You've got to focus on seven things. So when two of those things become obsolete overnight, you still have five things. 
and but you, most importantly, you've acquired the skill of acquiring skills. So you're like, yeah, I'll just I'll acquire two more skills and I'll have seven more before you know it. And um, uh, you also present differently. If you do have seven skills, one of them is a language, another is lawnmower repair. When when I need to, when I'm going to China on a motorcycle tour of whatever recording stuff, and you don't speak Chinese but you speak French, and you don't, you can't fix a motorcycle but you fix lawnmowers. Like, yeah, good enough. Can you spend a couple of weeks like learning how the bicycles are different than lawnmowers you just you present yourself as a different person that can overcome obstacles and that's it that's the end of story there are too many people there's even a book and i met the guys who wrote the book and i was nice to them but i should have told them to fuck off there's like music money and success and all the s's are dollar signs that's why my my second book is called welcome to the music business you're fucked because nobody was saying that and somebody needs to say that because if you're not careful, you will be the mark. You will be the punter. You'll be the person buying the ticket, you know, because there's a whole business of that. So, yeah, I do think it's important. I try not to ring that bell so loudly that it deafens people. But um, in every class that I teach, the internship class, like, all right, the students were required to have an internship at Millican, and now it's three, and as soon as I can get away with it, it will be five. And we're like, what? Like, yeah, because you need to deal with situations that you're not familiar with, and you think you know the place you want to be for the rest of your life, and you're wrong, and you don't. And if I cause you to get three to five internships, you'll get one out of desperation that will accidentally be the most amazing thing you've ever done. And oh my goodness, you'll do that. But left to your own devices, you don't even know what that is to say. So I need to freak you out and make you two, three, four or five of them. And that's interesting because a lot of people say that how they got their start in the music industry was precisely through an internship or through an opportunity where they knocked on the door of somewhere that they liked or that they admired and said, hey, do you need an extra set of hands? And so for someone that may not be 100% entrepreneurial, it's important to try a lot of different things. Right. And, and, and it's really simple. You know, the, the problem with academia is that that the people then think that the, the sum total of all of the things they've learned means something, you know, and it doesn't, you know. So I, I did it, you know, I started teaching at Columbia in Chicago 20 years ago. And, um, I, I, you know, I jabbered on about all kinds of stuff. And we had a day where students would bring in their press kit for a band, an artist they were working with. I'm like, okay. And um, some of them were interesting, you know, I think one student brought in a six-pack. Two of the beers still existed. Four were drunk. One of the empty bottles had the rolled... Well, I still remember this. The rolled-up press kit jabbed in the thing of the bottle. Another one had some matches and a cigarette. You know, you, hey, drink the two leftover beers while you go... Look, oh, that's really good. And then I looked at this girl who was kind of sitting there in the middle of the room, and I'm like, here we go again with this student. I forgot the assignment. Right? Because I sometimes I'm a condescending asshole, right? And I thought, oh, here we go. I'm like, all right. Uh, 
what is your presentation? And at that moment, there's a knock at the door. A fucking pizza delivery man comes in with three pizzas. The class stopped. I, I, I stopped, had something. And the press releases, the bios were inside these, you know, the one that was in with the pepperoni pizza. I mean, it was just a translucent, greased pepperoni nightmare. Didn't matter. It didn't matter. She just stopped the class. Everybody, and then, you know, people read the, the press release because they were scarfing down pizza and they felt like, well, the least I can do, you know. And um, and so I tell that story to students. I'm like, it doesn't matter what the font is on your resume. You put it in a box of donuts. They're like, ha, ha, ha. And then they do it. They're like, oh, my God. You know, one student made their own oatmeal raisin cookies. I'm like, ah, see, that's like frightening. You know, like, I don't know if you're poisoning. You know, go with a box of branded donuts. But I know people who've... Uh, real estate successes by doing that. It's the context. It's it's this other stuff. And once you once you see that, you need this broad approach. You need to understand that the person who you need to read your resume might be hungry, you know, uh, and is in fact a person. And I don't care what's on your resume. You know, if I'm not going to pick it up and read it, it doesn't matter. You're also teaching them to exceed expectations in some way. Yeah. Like surprise people, you, you know, but also, but also be humble. Like I'll tell bands, you want to get a show at this, this club in Rochester that's, that's successful and difficult to get on the bill. Just turn up every time it's snowing at like 5 a.m. and clear and salt the pathways and the steps so that local crew don't have an accident and a, and a, a traveling touring band are safe, you know, and just do that for like a month and then show up with shuffles to go, hey, I've been doing that. Yo, this is the guy. It's him. What do you want? You know, we'll give you anything. You know, oh, I just want an opening slot. You know, just like think about what people might need because they don't need your music. You know, that's interesting just because there is so much music. And one of the questions that I think about a lot and that I discuss with musicians or with other folks from the industry is how do you become noticed? And you've actually given some of the more interesting guidance that one could have is that your music probably sounds like someone else's music in some way because of the proliferation of technology globalization. We're hearing stuff from all over the world all the time. We're being exposed to more than ever. What you're describing is building a much more personal relationship to someone that is beyond the music. Right. And and it it seems harsh. You know, I teach in a school of music, which is, you know, I, I, I tread carefully. I mean, I'm a musician myself, but nobody cares about your fucking guitar solo. They don't, you know, and there's a five-year-old kid in China right now that's better than you will ever be at whatever it is. Type in whatever it is. And if you don't believe me, I'll show those videos. You know, if that's your plan, you're fucked before you start. 70,000 songs a day uploaded to Spotify every day, right? So why are you going to songwriting class? You need to go to baking class, you know, like... I was talking to a band at a thing I did at 2112 a few years ago. There was nine of them in the band. I'm like, yeah, well, you're fucked. You're fucked. You know, if there's two, three or four of you 
I mean, there's 28 people most days in my band, Pink Face, but, but I've, I've earned that, you know. But there's nine of you. Like, what's going to happen is you're going to become successful in Tokyo and you can't have the nine flights. You're fucked, you know, like, so, and, and plus I don't care, but there's nine of you go and fix up some old lady's house, spend a day doing that. I'll come to your gig. I don't, I don't care what your music sounds like, or if I like it or not, I want to support you. Right. So, but if the only thing you're going on about is how good your songs are, and I just, I just don't care. The other problem is that this just came out recently. It's worse. It's worse than seventy thousand songs a day. Um, that's Spotify. There's like twenty five million on Bandcamp or somewhere else or whatever. And it turns out that seventy. I think this is right. Seventy percent of the music that's listened to is old. Right, so it's not like you've got a hundred percent of everyone's attention, and they've got to listen to these seventy thousand songs. No, but you've only got thirty percent of some people's attention. Because, I mean, I was listening to my thirteen-year-old. I mean, I hear this singing from the bedroom. He discovered Steely Dan on his own. You know, so it's, it's singing along with "Can't Buy a Thrill" and "Asia" and all the stuff. So he's not interested in any of the 70,000 new songs from today, yesterday, or tomorrow. You know, I think I'm taking him to see Steely Dan, like, which is a band I listened to when I was 16, you know. Uh, now, whatever I was going to, I'm not listening to new music the day that Steely Dan played. We're going to be listening to Steely Dan in the car and going to see them. So if 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 your strategy is is to be good at your instrument, to be better at your instrument, and to write better songs. I mean, I, it just seems to, on the face of it, that's insane. And, and you know, I've had a fairly decent go of it on the drum kit, but I have yet, and I spend some time on this, I've yet to see one drummer on Instagram that's worse than me. Like, I mean, I've spent hours clicking through drummers and it's like holy fucking shit from double bass drum right to to insane jungle inspired rhythm like i I can't even imagine it but i've done all right as a drummer i i guess it's because i've done a bunch of other things other than you know playing drums along with a mickey mouse watch you know doing crazy other stuff you know so clearly, it's not all about technique. I thought it was, actually, when I was very young. I used to play for five, six hours a day from when I was nine. And then, you know, punk came along and destroyed all of that wonderfully, you know. Shifting back to the museum for a moment, I'm curious about the sort of pull that Chicago had for you. And also, if you may sort of describe the location of this museum or a little bit because you described it as a funeral home, just to sort of paint a little bit of a picture, both of the pull for Chicago and then also what this place kind of, how you found this place. Well, I've been in the place since 2000. Uh, We used to have a loft on Wabash, with this built, we had 9,000 square feet. H Gun Video were there. It's behind, in front of Reggie's, before Reggie's was there, where you could get 
eight and a half thousand square feet for eight hundred dollars a month, you know. But the pull of Chicago for me, Chicago was London, and industrial music was punk. So once you, you know, having moved to London during punk, you know, to work for the government, almost get fired for bleaching my hair, you know. 77 to go through that and there it could be in a band with Johnny Rotten and all that stuff to feel that energy like start a label fuck off we're not rehearsing here's that we're doing this you know to be in that and then of course it dies down and you do some other stuff and then you start to feel this shit's going on in Chicago I'm like oh what is it you know and uh, heard some revolting cocks um, came through with Killing Joke maybe 89 met Al early 89 uh, Killing Joke knew Al's then wife, Patty, from London. And so we went to dinner with, with Patty Jorgensen and Al t- tagged along. It wasn't like, oh God, we're meeting Al. We're like, oh, who's this fuck? You know? And um, I ended up hanging out in the studio with Ministry and they were mixing The Mind is a Terrible Thing to Taste. And um, I remember like sitting in the control and turning around and looking at the tape op so it used to be a person who pressed play, fast forward, stop, the tape operator. To basically like, you want to put it on the right fucking speed there, Junior? You know? And, but before I could say that, I'm like, oh, this is the speed of this song, you know? And they and they want me to drum on this, you know? And then I think um, we had dinner with Albini. It was Albini's birthday party. We went to a party in this building and it overlooked the lake. So there's this crazy a decade after punk right and so i knew that right if you've ever been adrenalized by something it's like oh, oh, oh it's it's the same but different hey, well, let's fucking let's have a ride on this bus for a minute you know so i moved from new jersey to chicago because i lived in manhattan and los angeles and then new jersey and um, started my label in new jersey james murphy was my first intern so I came to Chicago just to to bathe in that. And it was just exciting. Like, this is fucking wild, you know. And while I was in Killing Joke, I did the ministry tour. And while I was in Killing Joke doing the ministry tour, I started Pigface. So it was this cr- this really very creative four months. Then I got I got tied into all of this. Um, of course, Wax Tracks existed, but there was Merge, there was Touch and Go. There's a bunch of labels. There's lots of labels in Chicago. And um, I wanted Wax Tracks to sign Killing Joke. I've got correspondence with Jim and Danny. Hey, 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 still looking for a deal. You know, I've I've got all kinds of correspondence with Jim and Danny concerning Chris Connolly, who was signed exclusively to Wax Tracks. And he sang in Pig Face. Then he sang in Murder, Inc. We gave him a bunch of money to allow him to sing in Murder, Inc. But there's, there's all of these threads. And then Corey at Touch and Go... When Pigface happened, you would think, here's a slam dunk of an album for anybody. Who's going to release this? And um, Wax Tracks didn't want to, but I, so I went over to see Corey at Touch and Go. And this is 90, you know, this is still early, very early. And um, and the Corey Rusk said, hey, you know, Steve Albini produced it, David Yao from Jesus Sizzle was singing on it. Nine Inch Nails weren't anything then, so that, that was neither here nor there. And... Um, even Corey said, yeah, I, I, I don't want to release this. I don't want to release this on Touch and Go. And I just thought, 
fuck, you know? But he said, but you've got invisible records. And we'd released the Killing Joke double vinyl spoken word album and a couple other, a compilation, a couple of things. He's like, you know, I'll manufacture and distribute your label for you. I'll guide you through all that. We'll do that. I'm like, fuck, well, okay then. You know, and that that was the beginning of 350 releases on my label, you know. And so that Chicago energy, it's just wild. It was a roll up your sleeves, fucking do it. You know, the, the guys who lived on the fourth floor of the loft, they were in a band called Lab Report. Steve was a security at Exit. You know, I ended up tour managing Killing Joke and Pig Face and a bunch of things. They came down and helped build a floating soundproof room, which became Killing Joke's rehearsal room, where Murder Inc. started, where Lard rehearsed, Swans rehearsed. I mean, just stuff was vibrating and happening in more of a way than, than it happened in London, I think. So yeah, that pulled me, for sure. Do you think that scenes can be vibrant in that way geographically with the force that is globalization and internet decentralizing how we organize ourselves? Yeah, because it's complicated, but I see maybe a couple of years ago, I wouldn't have thought that, you know, because it's like, because it's the one thing that the World Wide Web did is like fucked everybody up, you know? So you hear phrases like, my new album's available in 58 countries. Yeah, no one's fucking heard it. You know, available doesn't mean listen to, you know? And so I started doing this thing. So everybody's global. You're not going to be global. I've been in some bands that did all right around the world, but we weren't really global, you know? And it was the success in one place that was the the beacon that like got the attention of some, that it was that success that got us there. So I, I kind of call it incrementalism maybe, or baby steps are battering rams, right? So we worked with a couple of artists in Decatur, Illinois, Marble Teeth and Harrison Riddle. And once you start, like nobody cares, nobody cares, nobody cares. All right. So we'll do a lathe cut, see-through, square seven inch and we're going to do 20 so we'll put 20 of these seven inch sleeves together harrison riddle and and uh the guy oh fuck the guy in marble teeth i've forgotten his name they're really kind of cool artists you know and they did this insane acrylic painting where you know when the paint's so fucking thick it's almost like there's tire marks through the paint like holy fuck and then you pull these apart and so every sleeve is different i I buy them in sets of four myself because i like to have four pieces of this 20 piece painting and um so there you go we're not trying to we're not looking for number one in the billboard charts because we only make 20 you know sure enough we sold out so now we, so we did the second pressing, which is music business code for we're shifting units. Look out, motherfuckers. Nobody ever says you did a second pressing. How many units was the first pressing? I would ask that question, but most people don't. So now we get to say, how's it going? I'll tell you how it's going. We're on the second pressing. <gasps> Ooh. So we're creating our own story. And then some podcast reviewer person goes into a record store in Decatur and sees this 
crazy sleeve with inch thick paint on it. Because what the hell is this? Well, I bought it because it was an interesting object. And because he bought it, he felt he had to listen to it. And actually really liked this, this music and gave it a good review. So, you know, you don't get reviews by sending files to podcasters, you know. So there's a way of, of being small and incremental and growing and just succeeding. Like we're succeeding with all of these baby steps. And with all these babies, we could do with 10 of these 20 sets. Or we could stop at seven, or we might do a hundred sets if it, if it keeps selling. But at no point are we risking the farm, you know. At no point are we carrying a hundred boxes. Or do we do we have a warehouse problem, or rats are eating the lathe cuts, or any it's being damaged in a flood, or any of the bullshit that we used to have? And and it feels like a sustainable interesting, exciting story and a model. And so I'm reminded that, that when when cities became viable for touring, it was one person in the city. At City Gardens or Shitty Gardens in Trenton, New Jersey, we used to call it. It's a guy called Randy Now. He booked the shows and he had his own radio show, which I think should be illegal. Hey, if you like that ska music, here's the toasters, and we've got a pair of tickets to give away. I'm like, oh, you fucker, that's genius. Similarly, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, David Souders worked at a record store, had a radio show, and booked a venue. And he was the reason that a store had to open up to sell plastic pants and shirts that said fuck, right? So you've got the beginning of a of a, a revival of an economy because one person decides to do some crazy shit. And I think the thing I've seen with the World Wide Web, great, you know, I can say hi to my friend who runs a bar in Tokyo and, you know, I, I do my online Zoom events that connect to people all over the world. You know, someone's fuck knows what time it is, but somebody from New Zealand or Scotland or both are, are dialing in. And it feels really great to do that, but it feels better to be in a room with people. I don't just think it's still possible. I think it's more possible, more essential, desirable, and fueling and important to do these small things and travel some, you know, like... It's all the unnecessary shit that turns out to be really necessary. You know, if you're traveling four hours to a thing, you're driving, you're not just driving down an interstate, you're driving through a, a focused cone so that you, you're, you're preparing, you're ritualizing the setup to the thing that you're going to go to. And all of these things are important. You can't just beam into a thing and beam into another thing. Just like I can't just open the box with my snare drum in it. I need to fucking sit with that and I need to tea ceremony that shit, you know? And that's how we are, you know? So making the effort, you know, do we need to be in a studio? No, you can do stuff at home, but the phone's going to ring and some, you know, the, the, the dryer's going to finish and go ping and pull you out of your concentration. There's all kinds of other reasons to be in a room that's also called a studio, you know. So it's all this unnecessary stuff that's really interesting to me. You know, does the, people have said, is it a physical space? I mean, yeah, of course the museum's a fucking physical space because I want you to smell the piss on the killing joke backdrops, you know, like, you know, it, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a physical experience. And, and I think that stuff vibrates. Like sometimes it calms me down. 
It absolutely just calms me down. I don't know why. But sometimes being in that room, as I said, I'm like, oh, I'm going to screen print on some sandpaper. Like, where does that come from? And that's, that's because of the physical presence. Martin Atkins, this has been a really incredible and inspiring conversation. Thank you so much for joining us on Heavy Hops today. Thanks. I, I, uh, it got a bit deep there, but, but it's just fucking deep. I don't know what to tell you. 